Hi, everyone. I'm Laurel Simmons, and welcome to another episode of the Right Club podcast. And I'm joined by Catherine Nelson Riley, our wonderful operations manager, as my co-host. Hey, Catherine. Wow, Craig Grace, he's got a lot to tell us, doesn't he? There's a lot of great opportunities to consider. When people mention a, a laneway house or lanescaping, it brings to mind, you know, a converted garage, you know, that was dilapidated at the back of your property. And what you do is kind of overlooking, but it's not. These are full, full homes. They're 1,700 square feet. They can be multi-use, all kinds of different opportunities. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more and learning more from Craig as he takes us through all of the steps and how they, this got to be and a great opportunity to consider this when diversifying your portfolio. Yeah. And he's quite clear that the city of Toronto has made great strides in developing these housing policies that now allow this kind of thing in Toronto. So this is a great opportunity. Listen to it. You may just want to contact Craig and find out what you can do in Toronto too. So Catherine, let's go to the episode. Let's go. Welcome to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping you, the real estate investor, advance to the next level. And now let's join this week's hosts and share ways for you to customize your life. Hey, Craig, welcome to the Right Club Podcast. We're really happy to have you here. We had you on a national event and we were so enthused and impressed with your information and your story that we wanted to have you on a podcast. So here you are. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for having me back. It's really a privilege. Okay, let's get right into it. You're the founder of Landscape. So for people who are listening, what is Landscape and how did it all start? Well, just to keep the record straight, I'm a co-founder. I have two other founders who are both real estate developers and constructors that are co-founders with me. And we started Lanescape in 2000. I don't know when it was. It must have been 2010 or so. Sorry, 2014, I remember. And the whole purpose of it was to advocate for a laneway sweep policy here in Toronto. At the time, Vancouver had one, even Ottawa had one. But Toronto did not. And we happened to think it would be a good idea for here. So we approached a few councillors that we knew had pro-housing agendas, really tried to get them on board with the idea. They were receptive and they worked with us over a very brief four-year period to create the as of right policy that went into effect in 2018. Wow. So... Yes. Was there any sarcasm in that at all, that brief period of four years? <laughs> You know, it's the, everything at City Hall moves slowly um, and absolutely credit is due to Anna Bailao and Mary Margaret McMahon, who are the two counselors that championed this for us. They actually made it move faster than it would have if they hadn't been there. So it moved actually at lightning pace when you consider how stagnant housing policy was at the time. Yes. You know, recently there's been changes to development charge bylaws and multiplex bylaws and garden suite bylaws that make it feel like change is just constant. But at the time, like nothing, even close to that had happened in my career. Wow. So, you know, you, that's great that you're part of that movement to improve the housing landscape of the country because as more and more cities do it, then more and more cities will do it, right? It, it's just a given it because of the need for housing for people. Absolutely. And since Toronto passed their laneway policy, 
the province has made it mandatory that all cities in Ontario have one. So we're seeing every municipality come up with some kind of bylaw that allows for laneway or garden suites. It's really an exciting time. So before we talk about some things like, you know, multiplexes, and I know you do other things in the GTA, can you tell us a little bit about laneway suites? Like what exactly is a laneway suite? Because I would imagine there are some people who don't know what that is. The simple explanation is that they're a second house that can go in your backyard. Here in Toronto, they can be as big as 1,700 square feet, depending on your lot size. They can have a basement as well, so possibly 2,400 square feet when you include basement area. Uh, They can really be four or five bedroom family homes with the right circumstance. In most cases, they tend to be smaller two bedroom, maybe three bedroom units but still something that is geared towards rental housing, definitely family-oriented, and has a lot of uses. In most cases, people want to construct them to help supplement their mortgage payments and produce some kind of revenue. But also in many cases, people are doing it to accommodate loved ones, whether it's having grandpa or grandma move back in, or if your kids are heading out to college, but they they can't move too far away, it can be a good jumping point for them. And since COVID, it's been increasingly used as a home away from home office, possibly in combination with those other uses. So it's like the, I guess what we used to call a granny flats, really, right? It's the, but, oh, excuse me, granny flats, but sort of reimagined. It could be very small units, as you say, but I mean, a 1700 square foot house, two stories, that's not a small structure. You're right. And it's really conditional on lot size. So some of them are as small as bachelor units or one bedroom units, kind of like a basement apartment, but on top of a garage. And others where the site and the context can support it are much larger. And those are in addition to multiple units that can't exist in the main house here in Toronto. So they've really done a good job of expanding the toolbox of housing solutions we have here. What's the biggest, no, sorry, not biggest, What's the smallest lot that you can actually have a laneway house or suite on? Because I I guess, I mean, it depends on the municipality and all the rest of it, but there's got to be some, even building code, I think, would have some implications on that, right? That's right. There's no minimum size in the eyes of the zoning bylaw, but the building code does have minimum areas, which I think is like a 300 square foot unit, something like that. So they're technically possible at almost any scale. They're usually most feasible when you can have, you know, call it 600 square feet or bigger, but it's dependent on site, dependent on neighborhood, dependent on a lot of things. The important thing to note is that they can be almost any size. Okay. They can be, and also the lot, uh, there are a lot of considerations about the lot, right? Whether it's, what's it called? A flight right. lot? Is that, is, am I, am I saying the right term? A flight pool lot that there's a lot of square footage or whatever in the back where you could put something in and maybe stuff along the side. So I have a question for you about that. In, in, in Toronto, especially the older parts, you see a lot of these houses that build that have the, the service laneway in between at the back, right? Those, so, and so the backyards might be, I don't know, fairly reasonably sized. These are probably in the older neighborhoods, I would think. Are you seeing a lot of development in those kinds of places? Yes. And That's mostly because the laneway suite policy now works in concert with the garden suite policy. So obviously laneway suites have to be on laneways, pretty straightforward. You need a publicly designated laneway at the rear of your property. Garden suites are designed to go on any lot. 
basically they apply to any lot that doesn't have a public laneway abutting the side or the back. So now in Toronto, any property can have a secondary suite in the backyard. It's just a matter of which zoning policy you fall under. And as a result of that, we're seeing projects in the periphery like Scarborough, North York, Etobicoke are all eligible for rear yard suites. Even downtown Toronto on tighter lots, really any circumstance now, we can accommodate an ADU. Wow. Are you seeing a real uptick in, in requests for proposals for these we, units? We did for a while until the rate hikes hit earlier this year. Yes. And now we've seen a bit of a slowdown, but compared to most other typologies, it's going strong. Um, and that's partly because not only does it work for investors, it also works for families, you know, that accommodating a loved one scenario or the home office scenario, that's still strong for people that want that for personal use. So it touches on enough different use cases that it's been pretty resilient to changes in the market. Hmm, interesting. No, I never, and it never occurred to me that you could have an office back. But why not? Of course, because people have offices in their homes all the time. And I can even see a market for if you have the space on your lot and you could put in a, a nice unit, you can rent it to your professional. They have a, depending on the zoning, I guess, but you can have an office in part of the structure and that person can live or family can live in the other part. Absolutely. You know, they have a broad appeal in an area that used to be a gap in our rental market. So when times are good, they'll take people that were looking at a condo and move them up into more of a house typology and vice versa. When times are bad, people who don't want to rent a house anymore can rent a laneway suite, still be in a detached family unit without having to go all the way to a condo tower. Hmm. Okay. All right. And as we know, I mean, all parts of the country are growing in terms of population. So it's not like we're running out of people to live in places. We're just running out of places for people to live in. You're absolutely right. And ironically, our neighborhoods in Toronto previously had declining populations just because the way demographics have been changing compared to historical uses of houses. We have fewer people living in more square footage than ever before. So these are actually only stabilizing the population of our neighborhoods, not even increasing them at this point. So we've had fewer and fewer people living in this typology, making it harder and harder to get, which is why house prices have been going up, or at least part of the reason. So it's doing a good job of finding the missing middle, which is the point of all of this. Right. Okay. So just let me I make sure that I understand that. So fewer people are living in the current structures that are there. Like That's right. Okay. Okay. So the housing is there. We just have fewer people living in it. Whereas before there might have been, I don't know, four or five people, maybe the kids left or whatever it is. Now we've got an empty nest syndrome and now mom and dad are there and maybe one of them dies or leaves for whatever reason. And I've just got one person living in a house that used to house, I don't know, four or five, six people. That's right. It's kind of reinvigorating the multi-generational or the multi-tenant living scenarios, but keeping people in separate structures. So the dignity, the privacy, the benefits of living in a low rise neighborhood are remaining strong, but you're putting two families on one lot or, you know, two separate roommate groups on one lot. It's just increasing flexibility in neighborhoods. Right. And using the land to the, the best, to its best use, right? Exactly. And infrastructure, you know, because we have more efficient plumbing fixtures and fewer people, 
Like we can absolutely support additional housing units in the yellow belt, like the residential areas of Toronto. So between these and multiplexes, it's starting to turn the tide a little bit. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what multiplexes then and, you know, sort of other types of neighborhood intensification that you work on, because I think this is really interesting, especially in the older cities like Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver and probably Winnipeg. I mean, we're talking about Toronto specifically right here, but there's a lot of older cities who, who are the cores, I guess we should say, the inner cores are older. And that's where a lot of the work is done. So what are the things that you're working on then? Well, Toronto has become a real leader when it comes to multi-unit housing. Just a couple of weeks ago, they passed a bylaw that means every property in Toronto is eligible for four units, which previously a lot of our neighborhood areas were limited to one unit per house, sorry, two units per house. So this has made it a lot easier to build multi-unit houses in the main structure. And it's two thing in well with the laneway and garden suite policies. So as of a couple of weeks ago, I can design people a fully as of right development charge free fourplex and laneway or garden suite. So I can take a single family home lot, bring it up to five units, which is eligible for commercial financing and do it without going to committee of adjustment. It's really been a massive shock to at least the process of getting this type of housing approved and also the cost because the city has elected to eliminate development charges and start inducing people to make this kind of housing. That's a major shift to go from one structure with one family to, as you say, a house. I mean, it depends on the structure and all the rest of it, you know, whether it can be converted into four, but if it can be, plus another unit on the property, that's major. Well, ironically, my architecture firm has been doing this for years. Uh, it just required committee of adjustment. Right. So we'd have to go through a long fight and make all the neighbors angry at us. And we'd have to use a whole bunch of loopholes to avoid development charges. So I've always been able to get a fourplex plus a laneway or garden suite approved on a lot. Just took a lot of time and a lot of money and it didn't pencil very well, which is why not very many developers were doing it. The city has essentially just identified that this is happening. The world is not blowing up when these go into neighborhoods and they're trying to make it so that all the regulatory pitfalls have gotten out of the way and we can actually access this. So everyday developers or very experienced developers all of a sudden can tap into this. Well, and I guess that's what I meant. It was a major shift, I guess, on the political and social level, because it is, it's huge that we can, that people can do that now, because I mean, truly, even if only 10% of the, the properties, say in the core of the city were like transformed that way, that's a massive boost in housing, isn't it? Absolutely. And city planning here in Toronto has a lot of efforts that even go beyond ADUs and multiplexes that they're working on. So more change is coming and it's a very exciting time. Yeah. So I mentioned you're pretty busy, I would say. Well, you know, I always want to be busier, but it is a good time to be focused on this type of development. I mean, we spend a long time doing this kind of housing the hard way. I've gotten really good at going to committee of adjustment. And I hope I never have to go again. <laughs> okay. Well, I think I can understand that because it really, you got way better things to spend your time on than sitting in a committee and, oh, I, I can just imagine. 
So what kind of developers then take on these projects? Because I can imagine that it's, well, economies of scale are, have to be taken into consideration, correct? If you have, you're building a 10 or 15 plex or a, I don't know, a hundred unit apartment building, there's probably a lot more money in it, although, well, yeah, I would think for the developer than to work on these much smaller projects. So, so what is it like out there finding people, you know, just fill us in a little bit about that. It's been really exciting because before really small developers couldn't do this because it took a lot of money and a lot of time and they just didn't have the resources and kind of medium sized like larger developers didn't have the scale possible. So they didn't look at this either. It was really people who were kind of in that in-between zone in terms of the size of their development company, or were just really passionate and bullish about this typology increasing in value in the future. So with these policy changes, we've just started to see the regulations be accessible to inexperienced developers, like newcomers who don't have as much capital or as much experience, suddenly they can tackle this kind of project because it's starting to make sense to them. And vice versa, the larger developers that need scale can buy one property a week or two properties a week and start coming up with a production model for this typology because there's 100% certainty on your outcome before you even purchase and your timeline to execute has been cut in half. Wow, that's a big, that's a big incentive. Yeah, well, and you know, all this goes back to the missing middle, like they say. Like, I've been joking with people that we've actually found the missing middle now because this was the gap in between a mid-rise or a high-rise and a custom home. All of a sudden, like, we have a new market of housing that people can actually execute and start to live in. Now, you mentioned that if you have a property that can be split into four, so that would be a fairly big property, correct? No, no, you're shaking your head. Okay. For people who can't see him, he's shaking his head. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. we've done a four we've done a fourplex and a laneway suite on properties that were 17 feet by 120 feet before. And that's pretty tight, like smaller units, all mostly one bedroom units and the like, but it's doable. If you have a lot that's say 22 or 23 feet wide by 130 feet deep especially if it's 140 feet deep or wider, all of a sudden you can have a lot of two bedroom units that are very leasable, possibly still have parking opportunities on the site. You have a lot of flexibility to execute these, even on Toronto lots that tend not to be very large. Wow. I'm really surprised at that. I don't know why I should be. It's just, I guess it makes sense. But even in terms of parking, because that's always an issue, right? Always an issue. I don't care where you go, what city you're in, what country you're in. Parking is an issue. So what's the latest out of Toronto on that in terms of parking requirements? Well, earlier this year, the city essentially eliminated parking requirements. So we are not required to provide any parking for houses in Toronto now. It's essentially up to the developer to elect if they want to designate space for parking or not. Which in some cases, especially if you have bigger units, like three and four bedroom units, Having an on-site parking space can make them more leasable, you know, reduce your vacancy and the like. But no one's forcing you to do that. That's your decision on whether that's the right move for you or not, which is the way it should be. 
that's that's pretty interesting, especially with the no parking, because that's big. But mind you, a lot of people in Toronto, they do use public transit. And that's one of the beauties of being in the Toronto area, because they do have a lot of things. But a question as you've been talking about the different, whether it's for it in, in the main house and being able to grow that, and then you've got the laneway. But what about the common amenities, the common outdoor spaces? How does that work? Does everybody have their own? Is it shared space? I don't know. How does that work? That's another choose your own adventure scenario. In most cases, (laughs) we can give pretty good sized balconies to any upper level units and dedicate some front yard and backyard space to each ground floor or basement unit. It's also possible to just have the backyard be common space that all units can access. That's something that our clients get to dictate and the site dimensions can influence. But really, it's whatever you want. And frankly, you know, this being a Toronto specific conversation, a lot of people who live in an upper unit are okay to just have a balcony and they go to the park if they need grass. Okay. And you did mention that this, a lot of this had been happening out in Vancouver in the BC area before it had come here. And that's basically, I'm assuming what it is that they're doing as well. And just using that same model to expand and to grow. Oh yeah. Vancouver is probably 10 or 20 years ahead of Toronto on all of these subjects. Wow. So where do you see this growing next? Like, I know that this has just moved into the new regulations that have allowed this to happen. But I have a funny feeling, having already listened to you with our national event and having had several conversations, that you've got the wheels turning and you're already seeing where this is going in the future. Is that anything you can share with us? Absolutely. So I think I mentioned Toronto Planning is working on a series of efforts to improve our flexibility for housing here. They're calling it the EHAN effort, the Expanding Housing Options in Neighborhoods. And that's a series of policies they've been rolling out progressively. Started with the work we did on laneway suites, and then they did on garden suites and multiplexes. Coming up next in Toronto is Main Street intensification. So we have many streets in Toronto that are smaller than an avenue where mid-rises are permitted, but bigger than just a neighborhood street. And those will get some kind of policy that they're going to announce this summer for hopefully four or five or six stories of as of right entitlements, you know, additional units, things beyond multiplexes that will allow us to fill the gap now between a multi-unit house and a mid-rise building. So that's kind of the next exciting frontier. But in addition to that, there's just a slew of improvements to existing policies that's making life easier for all of us and even smaller changes to just help regulation get out of the way. That way city staff can be more efficient and effective with their time and we can actually get down to the nitty gritty of building the housing we need, which is family oriented units in neighborhoods. And when you were talking, it just suddenly popped, this question just popped into my mind about um, airspace, air rights. And I don't know why, but it, I, it is an issue with when you move into a condo or something and you're, maybe you're on the, I don't know, the 14th floor, you've got this beautiful view and the lake or whatever it is. Right. And then boom, all of a sudden another condo goes up and there goes your view. Now, and I, you may be dealing with that partly with what you do, but how does that, how do you work around that? Because even in like these smaller roads that you were talking about, which are you know, partly commercial and partly a mix of commercial and housing. We're not going to be happy when these 
say mid-rise units go in and, you know, I've got a house on the back and all of a sudden my son is gone or you know, you're blocking my view or whatever it is, right? Like what's kind of the policies around that? What are they, are people talking about it? Yes, absolutely. You know, all these changes are only coming out after quite a lot of public consultation. So there is, there are provisions in the policies that do things like craft the permissive volumes to minimize shadowing impacts and perceived massing on neighboring properties. Things like with a laneway suite, if you have a small backyard, you have to pitch in the second floor wall adjacent to the main house so that you're not creating additional shadow on your neighbor. The same applies to multiplexes and mid-rise buildings. And those are constantly being refined, but it's all about finding the balance between an as-of-right path that allows us to build what we need without a subjective process like Committee of Adjustment and doing something that is respectful to our existing neighborhoods, which is important. So the combination of the two is it's constant battle. And I think planning is doing a good job of balancing the two where the policies we're seeing are very respectful, but also something that you can execute feasibly. And what about the environment? And by that, I mean the beautification of the properties. You know, a lot of times when you have new structures going in, trees come down, right? We need trees. They're like the lungs of our cities. But even if you go into some of those older neighborhoods, you might have big trees in the backyard. And then, whoops, we're going to put in a, whatever, say it's a thousand square foot unit. Well, there goes that tree. Uh, and that doesn't sound like much, but it can be one tree, maybe not so much, but a thousand trees, I, you know, 5,000 trees, 10,000 trees. It's a lot of trees. How mm. do they handle it? How are they handling this? I mean, you're absolutely correct. And uh, Toronto does a really good job of protecting our trees and implementing replanting policies. So if you do have to cut one down, you're either paying the city to go plant them somewhere else, or you're responsible to replant additional trees on your site. So the urban canopy, like the number of trees in Toronto is actually increasing year over year in spite of all the development we've been seeing. And I think the goal is to make that continue to be the case. And if you ask any architect or developer in Toronto, they will tell you that the city cares more about trees than they do people. And that's pretty much true. Okay. I don't see that changing. And all these policies still have that tree protection in place where you're having to follow a replanting ratio because you're right. Like our neighborhoods are the lungs of our city. They're where we have our parks. They reduce urban heat island effect because we have so much shade from our large growth trees. And that's something that will absolutely be protected in the future. Interesting. Okay. All right. So are you seeing a lot of people going in as in, like as investors now? What with, yes, I know interest rates go up and go down and all the rest of it. But aside from that, because really interest rates at 5% are, they're low when you look over the last 50, 60 years. You know, low to average, right? Nothing, nothing, not like 20%, which they were in the 80s. So are investors starting to look more seriously at properties now in, in Toronto because they can go in and maybe get a property that to just use as a single family home to rent isn't financially viable? But now if you can pick something up for what seems to be an exorbitant price, but whatever, that's the way it is, right? And you can turn it into a five, five doors that produce revenue. That's a different story. So anecdotally, Absolutely. I have uh, way more clients that are developers now than I do 
that are just independent homeowners. And I'm talking to a lot of developers that are looking at trying to achieve this typology at scale. Like people are giving this a hard look and we're going to see it continue to expand. I think it's going to take years to really see the impact of this policy, like what it will actually produce in terms of new housing units in Toronto. But anecdotally, you know, this is part of the panacea of housing solutions that we need. Like it's not as simple as a custom single family home or a high rise as your only two options. We need everything in between. And that is going to have a bit of an impact tomorrow, but it's going to have a huge impact a hundred years from now when we look back on our city. So it'll be interesting to see in the next few years, what the statistics look like for how this typology grows. But I can certainly guarantee it is having an effect and in combination with all the changes that are happening in Toronto, it's going to amass to a far more vibrant housing scale in our neighborhoods. And although, you know, you said 100 years, we'll look back and see a huge change. I would suggest that even within 10 to 20 years, you're going to start to see maybe pockets of really noticeable change. And then, you know, it's just going to it's going to be one of those things like all of a sudden it's just normal, right? And it's everywhere. And so, it, yes, it will be by increment, but there, I think there are pockets that just all of a sudden the neighborhood changes and springs to life and it'll revitalize businesses and everything else. Because you know, if you take, if you have five units where one used to be, then there's a need for services, right? So now that street that has some failing retail shops and a tired coffee shop and, you know, they're going to get more and more business. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I have a handful of clients right now that are acquiring more than one property per month to do this exact model. And they want to scale to one a week or multiple per week. Wow. So it will start to have an effect. Wow. That's kind of pretty, pretty interesting to watch, isn't it? I mean, considering where we were even 10 years ago. like, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when I, for the first decade of my career as an architect, the city was a joke. Like they were nothing but a roadblock to anything that could ever possibly be good in the world. <laughs> and uh, over the last few chief planners and mayors, and especially with recent councils, like we've seen people start to vote for people that want to support our neighborhoods and come up with housing solutions that actually benefit families. And uh, it's making change. Great things are happening here. Well, that's great. That's really good. On that note, we're going to go to the lightning round. So these are four questions. They're not difficult. <laughs> Catherine, I'm going to ask you to start. Okie doke. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Butler Mortgages, Canada's number one mortgage brokerage three years in a row. If you need a great mortgage broker to help you with investing in real estate or to help you purchase your next home, reach out to Daniel Patton and Michael Zanzini from Butler Mortgages. You can do that by calling 905-569-8326 or toll free at one 888 and check out their website, butlermortgages.com or by email daniel.patton at butlermortgages.com or michael.zanzini at butlermortgages.com. And let's go to the lightning round. This has been excellent. Really interesting, Craig. Thank you so much for being on and joining us today. So what is the best advice you've ever received? from anybody within your industry as you're growing up through school, whatever it was that has helped you to this day. Be patient. 
So I had a former mentor, his name is Paul Dowsett. He was one of the first bosses I had when I became an architect and he could see that I was a very impatient person and I didn't like things getting in the way of me when I was trying to accomplish something. And he liked to drill into my head that, you know, good things come with time and I'm still impatient, but I'm trying to get better. And as I'm now almost two decades into my career, I can look back and see the change that's happened in Toronto as well as with myself as a person and be happy about where we've come. So, you know, I think it's important we keep pushing for change, especially when it comes to housing, but also appreciate that it takes time for good things to happen. Good answer. Yes, I like that. Okay, second question. What's the one attribute that you would pick for yourself as that you think has made you successful? I mean, it's... Patience. Pa okay, patience. I was going to say, it's not patience. <laughs> you can't use patience. <laughs> Something else. <laughs> no, for that, I would say empathy. You know, I think part of the reason people like working with us is because we don't only think like architects. If anything, we never think like architects. We have to be good architects, but we have to think like a homeowner or a developer or a neighbor and try to put ourselves in the shoes of the people we're solving problems for. Because it's easy for me to just design a house that looks great, but it also has to function great. It has to be respectful. It has to be energy efficient. Like there are just so many different variables and requirements that go into architecture that you really have to let go of your personal biases and really try on the criticism you get when someone's yelling at you at a committee of adjustment hearing or somewhere else, you know, don't be afraid of criticism and try to embrace it. That's also an excellent piece of advice for anybody in any area of their lives. I like it. That's really excellent. What is your favorite nonfiction or business book? So I, oh, I can't think of the name of the author. Michael Lewis, I think. Anything by him. He wrote like Liar's Poker and Moneyball and a lot of books like that. They're just really interesting stories about really weird situations and people that thought differently and did something different. He wrote one about the pandemic that was really fascinating. Any of his books are just reads that I can't put down. Okay. Last question. If you couldn't be an architect, if tomorrow morning you woke up and for whatever reason, somebody waved a magic wand and there were no more architects, no more architects anywhere in the world. What would you want to do? If a first choice would be stay at home dad, I assume I would have married a much wealthier person <laughs> in this scenario. Okay. Some kind of billionaire I could just basically <laughs> raise kids with. But, uh, you know, at this point in my life, I can never get enough time with my wife and kids. And it's usually work that's getting in the way of that. So I would love a different world where I could spend more time with my family. Probably the non-cheating answer would be probably something in the business world. I love working with developers because I like the problems that developers have, whether they're financial or stakeholder related. But I was always too much of a creative to really embrace exclusively that side of the business, which is why I'm an architect. It kind of gives me one foot on both sides. So something in that field, I think, would be my backup. Okay, good. So thank you so very much, Craig. How can people reach you? What's the best way for them to reach you? If there's anything related to just Laneway and Garden Suites, they can reach out to Lanescape, which feel free to send property addresses to info at lanescape.ca. We provide free property reports for 
anyone that has a property or a listing that they're considering developing. If it's related to multiplexes or custom homes or mid-rise buildings, they can reach me directly at my other firm, which is Craig Race Architecture. And the email address for that one is info at craigrace.com. All right. Well, that's pretty easy. So there you go. If you want to reach Craig at either of his companies, then there's the information. And we'll also have that information up on the show notes. That's great. Thank you. So Craig, we've come to the end of the podcast. We really appreciate it. And we hope to see you back. Well, not too distant future because there's a lot of stuff happening, isn't there? Well, I'd love to come back. Thanks so much for including me and everything we've done so far. You know, I love that you're helping expand the community that's looking at this kind of housing solution and development solution. And we need more people like you spreading the gospel. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That was quite a lot of information and really an interesting. I'm, uh, I'm sure that there's quite a few of our listeners that are going to be considering diversifying their portfolios with some lanescaping. Yeah, it was really cool. And uh, yeah, kudos to Toronto who are doing this. And I know that Craig talked about other cities too, that he said Vancouver is about 20 years ahead of, of Toronto, but hey, you got to start somewhere. And we're going to see a lot of changes over the next 10, 20, 30, even 100 years. So got to start somewhere. And uh, Craig looks like it's a Craig and his company. Looks like a great place to to go talk and see if you can be part of that movement too. So Catherine, we've come to the end of the episode. Anything else to add? If our listeners, if you like this episode, if you like some of the others, make sure to reach out and give us some pod love on your favorite streaming apps. And so we can have other people just like you who want to learn more about real estate investing and continue that education on our website, www.therightclub.com, where you're going to find hundreds and actually thousands of hours of resources, complimentary free resources to you to help you for those people that are serious and in the business of real estate investing. So what we like to say is come customize your life with The Right Club. And we look forward to seeing you on our next podcast and listening, as well as some of our virtual and live events. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping all levels of real estate investors advance to the next level and help you customize your life. Be sure to tune in next week at rightclub.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you get a few seconds, please rate the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps the show get noticed by others like you. And we truly appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe.